Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel. And today we are pleased and indeed honored to have with us Professor Nigel Bigar. Professor Bigar is Regis Professor of Emeritus of Moral and Pastoral Theology at Oxford University, where he additionally directs the McDonald Center for Theology, Ethics, and Public Life. And today we are discussing his newest book, Colonialism, A Moral Reckoning, published by William Collins. Welcome, Professor. Uh, Thanks, Charles. I'm delighted to uh, be on the show with you. Professor, why did you write this book? Charles, I I wrote it um, mainly for for political reasons, um, uh, because I realized how uh, colonial history is being used for political purposes that I regarded as uh, as damaging. Um, I, I, the first time I realised this was during the 2014 referendum here in the UK on Scottish independence, which had it uh, um, um, voted in favour of independence would have seen the disintegration of the UK. And one of the arguments being put about by uh, proponents of secession uh, was that uh, Britain equals empire equals evil, and therefore uh, Scotland's independence would amount to a kind of national self-purification, and Scotland would then be free to uh, uh, march off into a bright new sinless future. Um, But I I knew enough about British imperial history to know that the equation empire equals evil just uh, will not stand historically. It's not true. and uh, because I, I am Anglo-Scottish, I, I opposed Scottish independence. I realized this was uh, an important battleground politically. And then more recently, um, uh, as you well know, uh, George Floyd was killed in Minneapolis in late 2020. Uh, that um, gave uh, new energy to the Black Lives Matter movement. That movement then came across the Atlantic to Britain. And uh, the narrative here... Uh, uh, that has spread throughout our institutions very quickly is that Britain is systemically racist and our systemic racism is due to our colonial past, which can be summarized in slavery. And therefore, we have to repudiate our colonial history, our colonial past, in order to free ourselves of racism. And again, uh, I knew that the equation of colonialism with slavery is just not tenable because the British Empire was among the first states in the world's history to repudiate slavery. And also, uh, I think there's plenty of evidence to show that Britain is not systemically racist. But again, uh, it it was the the, the political significance of colonial history that made me write this book. Why did the publishing house Bloomsbury renege on their commitment to publish this book? Very good question. Um, So just for your listeners' information, um, Bloomsbury Publishing um, approached me in 2018 and then gave me a contract to write um, uh, a book under the working title An Intelligent Person's Guide to Colonialism 
And uh, I produced the manuscript uh, um, with nine hours to spare on the 31st of uh, December 2020. Um, my um, editor at Bloomsbury was very pleased with the manuscript. He said it was uh, one of the most important books he'd seen in some years. He said he was speechless with admiration for its uh, comprehensiveness and its rigor, and he predicted sales of up to 20,000 copies. And then the book went into the copy editing process. Uh, a cover was designed for it. But suddenly, in uh, March 2021, I got an email from the top of Bloomsbury announcing that they were postponing publication indefinitely because, and I quote, public feeling is unfavorable. Um, now, you ask, why did they do that? Uh, I'm told that Bloomsbury wanted me to walk away from my contract. Uh, I'm told that it was because uh, junior, um, for want of a scientific term, junior woke staff uh, committed to uh, social justice and anti-racism. They objected to working on my book because they regarded it as, I suppose, racist and white supremacists and, and what have you. Um, so I, I'm told that is the reason. Um, Bloomsbury had denied that, but um, they've not given me a better explanation. So I think that's the, uh, the most plausible reason. And they never actually define what they meant by public feeling. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, uh, since I had no, uh, at the time in, in March 2021, I had no alternative publisher. Um, so I wasn't going to let them off the hook easily. I spent uh, about uh, $800, 600 pounds uh, on a lawyer, hoping they could tell me that uh, I could hold uh, Bloomsbury to our contract, but she told me there was a clause in there, and apparently it's a very common clause, that effectively gives the publisher um, the legal right to walk away whenever they choose. Um, but I, so I, I engaged them in some innocent um, um, conversation. I, I emailed them and I said, uh, uh, you're concerned about public feeling. But as you know, there are lots of public feelings out there, which one bothers you. Um, and the publisher could not explain. Uh, nevertheless, uh, they, they, um, it, it made enough sense for them, even if they couldn't explain it to me, uh, uh, for them to... Um, hand me about my contract in April. How did you become involved in what you refer to as, quote, the Imperial History Wars, unquote? Well, this, this goes back some years. Um, so in 2014, I, I, I was alert, as I said, to the political importance of, of, of colonial history. Um, and you in America, of course, have your own version of that in terms of the history of slavery. Uh, history is, is, is a political tinderbox these days. Um, um, but because of that, I joined up with a, a very eminent um, uh, historian of empire globally and of the British Empire, John Darwin. And together we launched a project in July 2017. Um, uh, and the project was called Ethics and Empire. And the, um, the purpose of the project was to examine empire from ancient China to the modern period uh, and to consider how it was that ancient Chinese people regarded empire morally and how uh, medieval Muslims regarded empire of, of their time. Um, and we launched this in 2017 
And then in late 2000, in late uh, November 2017, I published a, a, an op-ed article in the London Times in which I argued what I thought was the incontrovertible position that we British can find reasons for both pride and shame, shame and pride in our colonial past. A few days later, I finally got round to posting online a description of the Ethics of Empire project. And that's uh, when all hell began to break loose uh, because um, um, in the space of a week, uh, I was subject to three online mass denunciations, the last of which was signed by 170 academics worldwide, addressed to the Oxford, Oxford University, uh, pressing them to uh, pull their support for the project. Um, uh, John Darwin resigned within uh, three days of the first denunciation being published. Um, and I discovered that all this uh, went back to um, a tweet that a Cambridge academic, uh, uh, Dr. Priyambada Gopal, then reader in post-colonial literature, had tweeted to her uh, political allies in Oxford on the 13th of December, uh, early in the morning, uh, in which, uh, referring to the description of the Ethics and Empire project she'd read online, she tweeted, oh my God, this is serious SHIT. We need to block capitals, shut this down. Um, and so as a result of her concerted campaign that produced three mass denunciations online, um, my name was in the press in, in the UK for about three weeks nonstop. Um, and it was, it was because of that notoriety that I gained then that uh, Bloomsbury came forward and offered me a contract. But it was, um, it was the, the culture war on colonial history that I was pulled into uh, by Priyambada Gopal and her allies that uh, got me involved in the history wars. Although I should just point out, I, I had already probably come to their attention in 2015-16 when I also published an article in the London Times arguing that uh, contrary to the Rhodes Must Fall protesters in Oxford, Cecil Rhodes was not South Africa's Hitler. And I debated in the Oxford Union uh, against the uh, um, dismantling of his statue here in Oxford. How would you um, define colonialism? Well, um, I prefer to avoid um, talking of colonialism or imperialism because the ism implies some kind of um, unitary, coherent project or ideology. And uh, the British Empire, like most empires, um, was never one thing. It was all sorts of things. Um, it lasted 400 years from 1550 to 1960, thereabouts. Um, it stretched from Newfoundland to New Zealand, right across the world. The British Empire was different things at different times in different places, some good, some bad. Uh, so it, it wasn't a, a unitary thing. So I try and avoid the isms. Um, but um, empire, uh, I'll start with empire before I talk about colonies. Empire uh, takes all sorts of different forms. It, 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 it involves the, the domination uh, by one people or nation of other peoples and nations. And it can take informal forms in terms of, of culture and economics, as well as, as it were, former formal territorial control. So 
according to that definition, the United States is an empire of thoughts now. Um, uh, Britain exercised empire in Latin America through its economic financial power in the 19th and 20th centuries, even though it didn't actually control much territory there. Um, and then empire in, in India, as far as the British and other European countries were concerned in the 18th century, was first of all about trade. And uh, only because of that, because of involvement subsequently, consequently, in uh, local Indian conflicts uh, that the East India Company, the British East India Company, uh, won. Uh, then, then it got territory that it then ruled. Um, so my, my point is, uh, empire is a much more various and amorphous thing than, than colonies. Colonies are, are usually where um, one people dominates another uh, through um, uh, direct government. So uh, India was a colony of sorts, although very few uh, uh, English or British people settled there. Um, in North America, uh, uh, the North American colonies, of course, um, uh, were did attract lots of lots of settlers. Uh, same same with Australia. Um, so, so a colony is is a form of empire, and it involves uh, the imposition of government over a territory. Is what I'd say. So you would not necessarily agree with Sir Winston Churchill's characterization of colonialism as, quote, bringing forward backward races and opening up the jungles, unquote. <laughs> um, sometimes it was that. Sometimes it was that. Um, but there's many things, too. I mean, it, uh, the British Empire, as I said, didn't start off with humanitarian purposes. It uh, began with trade to India. Um, Englishmen first uh, landed on the uh, eastern seaboard of North America, partly because they, they, they wanted bases from which to harry uh, the shipping and colonies of the Spanish Empire. Uh, and then, of course, uh, um, some of them were uh, um, hungry for gold, which they never found. Uh, and then, of course, um, North America becomes populated by all sorts of people, uh, often fleeing famine in Scotland and, and Ireland some um, seeking uh, refuge from religious persecution, uh, lots of people wanting to, to make a better life for themselves. But, uh, yes, um, toward the end of the 1700s, the 1800s, the, the movement for the abolition of slavery takes a hold of the British Empire. So, as I said earlier, the empire was among the first states in the world's history uh, to abolish slave trading and then slavery. And then, um, uh, and that, that was significantly because of the influence of evangelical Christianity. Um, and then that humanitarian concern that begins with African slaves then expands into a general concern for the plight of native or Aboriginal or indigenous peoples in North America and Australasia and Africa. And so in 1837, you get uh, the foundation of the Society for the Protection of Aboriginal Peoples. Um, and, and from the early 1800s, uh, yes, the empire does acquire uh, a civilizing mission, uh, which uh, I know that's much mocked nowadays, and uh, cynics say it was just a kind of pretext or cover. Um, maybe it was sometimes, but, but no, oftentimes it was, it was deadly earnest. Uh, there was a serious humanitarian uh, concern. So Winston Churchill wasn't wrong, uh, but that wasn't the whole story about empire. 
How does your adherence to Christianity influence the writing of this book? Well, that's a very good um, question, Charles. Um, I think partly, uh, okay, partly um, uh, as a Christian, um, I, you know, I do believe in, in um, justice and human dignity, and I applauded the, I applaud the, the, um, the movement for the abolition of uh, slave trading and slavery. I applaud uh, the humanitarian concern, which was very much driven by um, Christian sensibilities, uh, evangelical Christian uh, uh, convictions. Um, so it was partly I wanted to rescue the humanitarian and liberal elements of the British Empire and to some extent other European empires from the current uh, um, uh, caricature and denigration um, because according to the, the popular narrative now um, um, empire colonialism was nothing but a litany of racism and exploitation and oppression and uh, grotesque violence and um, I knew enough about history to know that wasn't true and I knew enough about the history of the British Empire to know that uh, Christian humanitarian impulses um, were strong. They weren't unrivaled, but they were strong. Partly that, uh, partly also, I think, um, as a Christian, I'm, I'm acutely aware of um, the creaturely or, or finite or limited nature of human being and how... Um, um, what we understand and what we do is heavily conditioned by our circumstances. Um, and that's made me sensitive to the fact that the circumstances in which my great, 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 great grandparents lived, even my great, great grandparents uh, are very different from my own. And um, uh, that, that leads me to, uh, so, so I'm, I'm sensitive to, the constraints under which human beings operate and um, aware that under different conditions, different kinds of kinds of behavior are appropriate. So, for example, um, uh, I and, and you, I presume to say, uh, live in countries uh, here, in, here in the early 20, 21st century that enjoy um, a degree of, of uh, wealth and health and security, generally speaking. That is unprecedented in, in our own histories and in the histories of the world. Uh, but in, in, in uh, times and places where uh, life, human life is short, nasty and brutish, where um, life is insecure, um, where trust is, is, is not easy to find, uh, resort to force of arms and violence is more common and often more justified. Uh, so I, I think... Uh, an acute awareness of, of um, uh, creaturely uh, constraints and, and limitations is another important uh, um, way in which my, my Christian view of the world has shaped my interest in these things. And I, I, I am against utopian politics um, um, because I, I, I just think that the human affairs are, 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 are too uh, subject to imperfection. And, and to sin, uh, to, to trust utopian politics. You mean when you say that you are endeavoring a, quote, more evaluation of the British Empire, unquote, uh, in this book? 
Uh, say it again, Charles. What do you mean when you say that you are endeavoring in this book a, quote, moral evaluation, unquote, of the British Empire? Okay. Um, so, I, I, whenever I'm talking about my book, I, I make clear that although it contains a lot of history, and I, I hope that even if um, a reader doesn't agree with my moral judgment of the past, um, they will at least be better informed about the uh, wonderful and terrible variety of things that British Empire and uh, colonial endeavor actually was. Um, but it's, what I've written is not a history book, so uh, although there is a potted history in the introduction that lasts about two pages, um, the, book is, the book is not organized chronologically. It's organized into chapters that address directly um, uh, um, hot-button uh, moral questions. Uh, and my, my, although my first degree was in, uh, university degree was in history, and although my preferred reading has always been history, I'm by profession uh, a moral theologian or Christian ethicist. And uh, so the, the book um, has eight main chapters. The first is on motives, second on slavery, third on race, fourth on land, fifth on culture, sixth on economics, seventh on government, and the eighth on violence. And in the conclusion, um, I, in each of those cases, I'm, I'm addressing questions such as, you know, was, was the British Empire fundamentally motivated by greed? Uh, was it uh, uh, essentially racist? Um, it wasn't democratic. Colonial government wasn't democratic. Does that make it illegitimate? Uh, was the British Empire always given to disproportionate and grotesque violence? So those kinds of questions. And at the end, I, in the conclusion, I kind of toss up the, the goods and the evils, and I, I try and arrive at, at an overall moral assessment to, to uh, uh, tell the reader what, I, what, what kind of moral sense I make of the whole, the whole phenomenon. Why, if slavery was an institution with a history going back to the dawn of civilization, do we, for the most part, concentrate on the transatlantic version in the 370 years after Columbus? Excellent question, Charles. Really important. Uh, the short answer is the reason some people want us to concentrate on the transatlantic slave trade and uh, slavery in the West Indies and the American colonies, the reason is political. Uh, it, 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 this, this selection, uh, this selective focus is for present political purposes. Um, in, in your country, as I understand it, uh, uh, there is a narrative according to which uh, the United States, uh, in its very foundations, is racist. Um, and the equivalent in my country is that uh, Britain is systemically racist because of, of colonialism that uh, was equivalent to slavery. So the, the focus is political. Um, and one way to expose that is just to point out that, that empire and slavery were universal institutions. Uh, slavery was practiced all over the world by people of every skin color, uh, even in North America, um, Native Americans, the Comanche in the 1700s uh, ran what one um, historian has called a vast slave economy. Um, and um, long before Europeans got involved in slave trading, um, 
Africans were selling other Africans to uh, uh, to the Romans and then to to the Arabs. Um, uh, and and I I um, I discovered when I was in uh, visiting my wife's family in Raleigh, North Carolina, in January of this year, when I visited the museum uh, of the history of the state of North Carolina, I discovered that on the eve of the American Civil War in 1860, there were in the state of North Carolina 30,000 freed slaves, some of whom kept black slaves of their own. And you can find the same thing in Jamaica in the 1700s when uh, black slaves escaped from the plantations and hid out in the forested interior of Jamaica, some of them keeping black slaves of their own. The point being, slavery was a universal institution. Uh, so it doesn't make good historical sense to to focus on um, the European British sin of uh, uh uh, slavery and transatlantic uh, slave trading, uh, but it makes very good good political sense for those who want to uh, use it for their political purposes. Is that why we don't talk about or concentrate very much on the massive, according to our mutual friend Professor Jerry Black, around four million slave trade from Europe to the Muslim world, or for that matter, celebrated in the way that is done in apparently some Turkish television programs? Yes, I mean, I, I believe that the Arabs are reckoned to have traded from Africa 17 million slaves. Um, the Europeans traded across the Atlantic something like 11 million, I think. Uh, and then, yes, uh, um, 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 Muslim raiders from the Barbary coast in North Africa um, uh, were busy um, uh, raiding slaves even in uh, on the coast of Southwest Ireland and England, cutting off whole villages into slavery. Um, uh, so yes, I mean, there's, if you want to get upset about slave trading, you ought to focus on on the Arabs. But uh, um, we don't care about that. Well, uh, uh, those who have who want to make political capital out of Western slavery don't care about that. Uh, they just want us to focus on um, uh, European and British and American. Uh, slave trading and slavery as if these were unique sins, which they certainly weren't. Why was Britain the trailblazer in first prohibiting the slave trade and then slavery itself in the late 18th, early 19th century centuries? Um, well, Britain wasn't alone. Um, um, there was um, there was a strain of, of uh, French Enlightenment thought uh, I'm thinking here of the uh, Enlightenment thinker Montesquieu, uh, who around the mid-1700s was writing uh, about the immorality of slavery, although uh, um, he explained the immorality of slavery uh, primarily in terms of the um, morally vitiating effects of slavery upon the slave owners, <laughs> uh, which is not quite um, uh, how we tend to regard it's it's evil. Um, so so the, the, there were in certain circles in in, in um, Northwest Europe a sense that slavery was wrong. Uh, and even in 1750, uh, uh, Britain's King George um, could be found uh, to, to to write a I think a juvenile essay in which he expressed his uh, abhorrence of 
slavery. Um, uh, so th- th- there was a, a, a movement that covered several European countries. Um, I think France was the first European country to abolish the slave trade in the 1790s, shortly after the revolution. But then Napoleon reversed that 10 years later. Denmark was the next um, um, in line, uh, abolishing the slave trade within its territories in 1804. Britain followed three years later, 1807. Uh, In Britain, uh, whatever the influence of Enlightenment thinking, uh, there was much more widespread abolitionist conviction and agitation um, associated, as I said earlier, uh, with the spread of evangelical Christianity or nonconformist Christianity. Quakers, as you know, in America were um, early um, um, advocates for the abolition of slavery. So nonconformists, Quakers uh, and Methodists and evangelicals within the Church of England. Um, and, and this proved to be a, uh, a remarkably popular movement. Um, so that in, in 1791, it's reckoned that uh, one of the many popular petitions presented to the British Parliament um, advocating the abolition of slavery uh, attracted the signatures of, it's reckoned, 20% of the total male population of the country. Now, these days, 20% doesn't look like a very large figure, but you've got to remember this was 1791. Uh, there wasn't any social media then. Um, um, and uh, there wasn't uh, 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 democracy in, in any mass sense then. Uh, so it is remarkable that uh, nevertheless, 20% of the male population signed these things. It was very popular. Uh, so uh, those are the kind of cultural forces that began to gather momentum at that period. Now, why then? Um, it's not quite clear to me. Uh, it may be that uh, more and more information was beginning to um, seep through from the West Indies, in particular, to England about the nature of slave trading and slavery. Uh, so it was partly just a matter of growing information that got more and more people uh, upset about it. Um, uh, but, but even though England, uh, Britain wasn't the first country to abolish slave trading, um, um, after 1815, with the defeat of Napoleon, when Britain for 100 years was the dominant European um, uh, power, and European includes the US at that point, a Europeanized power, Um, Britain uh, began to use its diplomatic and its its naval power uh, to suppress slavery across the world from Brazil, the Atlantic, Africa, India, uh, Australasia, in the 1820s and 30s, uh, the slave trade department in the British Foreign Office was the largest unit. And around 1840, thereabouts, um, the Royal Navy devoted over 13% of its total manpower just to manning ships off the coast of West Africa, uh, uh, which were there to stop. Um, um, slave trading between West Africa and and Brazil. And according to two American political scientists, um, uh, Chaim Kaufman and Robert Pape, um, the British 
uh, endeavor to suppress the Atlantic slave trade alone between 1807 and 1867 was the, the greatest example of international moral action in modern history. Um, so if the empire sinned by taking part in slave trading and slavery for 150 years from 1650 to 1800 thereabouts, it did uh, a subsequent 150 years of penance in suppressing slavery all over the world. Why do you believe that, quote, racial prejudice, unquote, was not the key to British imperial policy? Uh, racial prejudice? Um, well, first of all, um, we need to distinguish or disaggregate what we mean by racial prejudice. Um, uh, a, a people um, that is dominant is prone to arrogance and prone to hubris. It uh, doesn't matter what the people is, who the people are. Um, arrogant people can be condescending and patronizing. Um, sometimes that can take a, a racial tinge, so uh, uh, white Britons being patronizing about uh, black Africans, for example. Um, but there, there are different... Uh, and then you can have the view that... Um, and this is the really bad racist uh, 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 um, extreme racist view, the view that uh, uh, some other people whom you're dominating uh, are not just temporarily developmentally inferior, they are naturally inferior, and that you, the, uh, the white British man, uh, you, your destiny is to rule them forever. So that would be racism as white supremacism. Um, in the British Empire, uh, you have a whole range of different attitudes toward native peoples on the part of white Britons. Um, yes, sometimes there was white supremacism, uh, not least in, in southern Africa. Um, but then you have someone like Cecil Rhodes, uh, who could be patronizing about Africans. He called them children, meaning uh, in terms of, of cultural development, they were they were relatively underdeveloped, um, but in 1894 in the Parliament of Cape Colony, uh, Rhodes says, yes, they're children, they're just emerging from barbarism, which sounds bad to us. He then went on to say, but, he says, I do not think that they, the black Africans, are any different from ourselves, and it's our responsibility to enable them to, to grow and develop. Uh, now, one can criticize Rhodes for patronizing black Africans, uh, but one has to give him credit for saying, when all is said and done, uh, we are basically equal in our capacity for, for growth and development, and, and it's our responsibility uh, as the more developed people to help these other folk develop. So, um, and then you've got, uh, uh, as I said, the, the campaign to abolish slave trading and slavery was premised on the Christian conviction that all human beings are equal under God regardless of race. That's, that's a fundamental conviction that, gir that, that, that uh, girded the, the, um, the movement to abolish slave trading and slavery. And uh, you have this uh, egalitarian conviction that runs right through the 19th century so that, um, according to one book I read about the Parliament of Canada in the 1880s, uh, whenever someone would stand up and talk about Native Americans as if they were naturally inferior, 
uh, another MP would stand up and say, no, that's un-British, un-Christian. Uh, they may be uh, uh, inferior in terms of technology and agriculture uh, or science, uh, but they are uh, essentially, fundamentally equal to us, and it's our job to enable them to, to grow and to flourish. Um, so that's why I say you, you cannot say that racism, certainly biological racism, was essential to the British Empire, although, without a doubt, uh, British people, uh, either side of 1900, uh, they did feel superior uh, to lots of people because in so many respects, they actually were in terms of power, technology, uh, navy, science, um, 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 economic power. Uh, and it's, 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 it's always a temptation for dominant peoples to, to be arrogant uh, um, and uh, uh, to be hubristic. Uh, but um, uh, the, 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 the views of Britain toward other peoples in the empire uh, varied from time and place and according to... to to, to people. Why do you not believe that Canada's treatment of its Native American population merit the description of, quote, genocide, unquote? So the charge of um, genocide, well, um, it is true that, that uh, in the 18th century uh, there were some native peoples in what's now Canada uh, that became extinct. I'm thinking of the, the Beotook of Newfoundland. Um, uh, they were wiped out, um, but they were wiped out uh, mainly by disease. Um, and I've just been reading a book about uh, indigenous peoples of North America, and uh, it is estimated that um, after suffering successive uh, epidemics of disease, often smallpox, over a 50-year period, uh, a Native American people uh, usually suffered 90% uh, losses. So, so devastating was disease. So the Beotook, for example, um, suffered grievously from disease, sometimes from um, um, uh, warfare with other Native peoples, um, uh, some, in part from being pushed out of their, um, the, the, the lands where they resided by settlers. So the causes were various, but the main point is this. Uh, their extinction was not anyone's intention. And in fact, colonial officials uh, uh, lamented it. And um, I think that the word genocide, and this is the, the, uh, the meaning of the word in international law, the word genocide, has to refer to uh, the intention to annihilate a whole people, and usually it is it is uh, the intention of the state. And there was no occasion in the history of uh, British North America or Canada where colonial government uh, adopted a genocidal intention. Now the other period, um, and I discussed this at some length in my book, uh, when the uh, charge of genocide is is raised is in the 1870s and 80s when the uh, native Canadians on the western plains of Canada as as indeed south of the border in the US Native Americans uh, suffered the from the um, sudden and precipitous collapse of the bison population 
upon which their economy and their livelihoods depended. Um, and um, um, in in response to that, uh, um, uh, as a result of that, lots of Native Canadians on the Western Plains of Canada uh, uh, were dying, suffering from disease, uh, dying of, of famine. And uh, some people say that the Canadian government because of racist prejudice, uh, uh, failed to come to the aid of uh, Native Canadians uh, who, uh, um, uh, who who died uh, needlessly because of, of uh, culpable uh, neglect on the part of the Canadian government, which amounted to genocide. And the evidence, as I as I um, presented in in my book, is that that's just not so. Yes, Canadian government. Uh, was not as effective in relieving famine as would have been ideal, but that's partly because uh, in the 1870s and 80s, uh, the reach of Canadian government out west was uh, very weak. Um, there were only about uh, 1,000 Canadian mounted policemen patrolling uh, the whole of the area outside of Ontario. Um, and um, uh, in fact, uh, it, it turns out that only about uh, uh, 34 native Indians are reckoned uh, to have died from starvation during that period. So it was hardly a, a Holocaust. Um, but there was certainly no intentional genocide. And um, I don't even think one can claim that there was culpable neglect. It was tragic. Keeping to the question of uh, famine, why do you believe that the British Empire's track record in handling the Irish famine of the 1840s and the Bengal famine of the Second World War was not nearly as uh, malign as is made out by its critics? Okay, so, so the argument's similar. Um, uh, the, the suffering was, was tragic. Uh, no one in London intended... Uh, to uh, annihilate uh, the starving Irish or the starving Bengalis in Ireland. Um, yes, one can criticize the London government for failing to provide uh, sufficient support uh, at certain periods, especially toward the end. Um, but one has to remember just how weak 19th century governments were um, they didn't have huge resources. Hitherto, relief of the poor in England and Ireland uh, was, was primarily the responsibility of landowners. It wasn't a government responsibility. Um, now, it's true that uh, famously Charles Trevelyan, who was in charge of the British Treasury at the time, uh, made a remark about um, um, the Irish government being providential. And this is often... Uh, uh, mistaken uh, to mean that he regarded uh, um, the the famine as a kind of as a judgment of God upon the Irish and therefore that's why we can just leave them to perish because uh, if it's God's judgment it's not for us to to interfere that that's that's complete nonsense um, uh, Charles Torelli can also be said to refer to uh, the starving Irish uh, um, in in letters he wrote he's he wrote once, we, we must not let, we cannot let them starve. He was committed to, to famine relief, 
Um, what he meant when he regarded the famine as providential was that he 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 realized he wanted to use the occasion um, now that it had happened uh, to 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 seize the opportunity to uh, subject Irish agriculture to widespread reform so that famine wouldn't recur again. So it, it was providential in that sense, not providential in the sense of excusing uh, a, a lack of 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 um, of, of aid. Um, as for Bengal, um, yes, I mean, it, uh, there was a, 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 a U.S.-based um, female journalist um, whose name I've forgotten, who uh, has uh, peddled the, the claim that um, uh, Bengal was let starve because of Churchill's racism. Um, as I, I show in my book, there is, there is no serious uh, um, evidence base for that. Um, the reason that uh, uh, there was a famine in Bengal in 1943 was mainly because of, of uh, Japanese invasion of Burma, which cut off normal supplies. Partly, uh, I think there was um, there was was there a drought, or was there yes, or flooding? One of the two environmental factors. Um, and then there's still some there's still some debate as to, as to whether the problem was lack of supply of food. Or, or poor distribution, and there was thought at the time that the poor distribution was partly due to hoarding. And by the way, the the government of Bengal in 1943 was an Indian government. Um, the British had introduced um, elected provincial governments in the 1930s, uh, and the, the the minister responsible for famine relief was Indian, not British. Um, and when when Churchill heard of the the famine, uh, he was swift to authorise uh, uh, the shipping of of uh, foodstuffs. Um, but there the were there the, the were conflicting accounts of what the problem was um, and what was needed. Um, um, in the end, uh, and of course, at that time in in 1943. Uh, the Allies, the Americans, the British, having just kicked uh, the Nazis out of North Africa, were preparing to launch uh, the the first ever um, major uh, seaborne invasion uh, of of Europe, uh, a precursor to Normandy in 1944. That's to say, the invasion of Sicily in in July 43, and they needed all the shipping they could get. Um, so if, if Churchill dithered over trying to divert shipping to to relieve Bengal, there was a good reason for it. Um, but there is no evidence at all that um, the famine was exacerbated by Churchill's racism and reluctance to, to relieve the plight of Indians. Why do you believe that to describe British colonial policy as, quote, exploitative and oppressive, unquote, is simplistic from a historical perspective? Well, just, just taking taking oppression. Um, first of all, uh, uh, if you take on board the fact that the the British imperial authority and and power, diplomatic and naval, was used to emancipate slaves, then you can't you simply can't say it was it was um, simply uh, oppressive. Um, a colonial government. Uh, uh, Often sought to to relieve the plight of the rural poor, 
um, it provided um, uh, the rule of law, uh, stable institutions, um, through its promotion of the free market from the 1840s till after the First World War in 1919. Uh, it gave native entrepreneurs opportunities uh, so that uh, in the 1890s, uh, Indian businessmen, having come to uh, England to observe industrial processes, took back uh, technology and expertise to India and built uh, textile and steel mills in India. Um, one of the, the main entrepreneurs was the Tata family. And the Tata family, the Tata um, um, industrial empire, now owns most of British steel production. <laughs> uh, so, so to describe British colonial government as simply oppressive just doesn't take account of any of those facts. Now, was it sometimes unjustly oppressive? Yes, it was. Uh, was it always? No, it wasn't. As for exploitation, well, as I've said, um, colonial economics um, gave uh, native entrepreneurs opportunities, um, even if, if by exposing... Uh, uh, native entrepreneurs or native producers to a worldwide market that sometimes reduced their market share. Um, but also, um, it, it is said, for example, say, there's, a, there's a claim long been made by Indian nationalists that uh, in uh, 1700, I think, uh, India produced something like 25% of world GDP. And in 1900, it was two to four percent or two percent. Therefore, the British raped and pillaged India. But as the uh, Bengali-born, uh, London-based um, economic historian uh, Tirthankar Roy um, keeps repeating, uh, that's nonsense, because what happened in the period, period between uh, 1700 and 1900 was that the economies of uh, Britain and Germany and the US uh, grew enormously. Uh, so their share of world GDP uh, 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 ballooned and uh, India's relative share shrank. Um, um, and exactly the same thing happened to China in the same period. Uh, and China was never colonized. Um, so so the, the, uh, the, the, there's a... Uh, a Swiss uh, economist uh, called Rudolf von Albertini, who uh, undertook a comprehensive survey of the relevant uh, colonial literature and concluded that uh, we cannot understand uh, colonial economics in the simplistic uh, neo-Marxist terms of plunder and exploitation. Why do you find, from a Christian just war perspective, the Boer War and the expedition to Benin in the late 19th century justified, while the first Anglo-Chinese war is not justified? So the, um, the first opium war of 1839 uh, was basically motivated, I think, by uh, a sense of impugned honor. So the Chinese imperial authorities had arrested uh, English merchantmen and abused them um, and they, 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 partly because the, 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 the English merchants had become frustrated with the uh, Qing imperial authorities um, 
um, banning of um, trade in opium. Uh, there, there was a, there was a, a healthy domestic market in China for opium, but the Chinese imperial authorities banned it. English merchants were outraged and wanted the Royal Navy to come in and and sort the Chinese out. Uh, that alone was a, a bad reason. Uh, a free market may be a good thing, but uh, China had every right to decide upon its internal policy with regard to what may be imported or not. Uh, so that, insofar as that was the reason for British intervention, um, that doesn't amount to just cause. And just cause, according to Christian just war theory, has to uh, comprise a grave injustice that requires uh, correction. And uh, being denied freedom to trade opium in China was not a grave injustice. And then, uh, insofar as uh, the British were moved to um, punish China for insulting them, um, again, uh, uh, I'm afraid an insult, <laughs> a fight upon your honor, is not a sufficiently serious uh, um, injustice, even if it is unjustified, to warrant the hazards and costs and destruction of war. Um, as for the the Second Anglo-Boer War, 1899 to 1902, um, there, are, there, there is a controversy about the causes of it. Um, a very popular um, account, which again is, is uh, neo-Marxist, is that uh, the... the, the um, in South Africa, around 1899, there were two British colonies and uh, two Boer Dutch colonies in Southern Africa. And um, in the late 1800s, um, a, a, a gold and diamond industry had uh, developed in one of the, the Dutch republics, the Transvaal. And uh, the the claim of the neo-Marxists is that the British simply wanted to get their hands on the gold. Simple uh, economic uh, cause. Now, if that were the case, if it was simply economic predation, uh, that does not constitute a just cause for war according to a Christian view. But um, I, am, I am quite confident, and there are plenty of historians who would support me in this and I present the evidence uh, that the motive for uh, the British fighting the, the Boers in 1899 was not to seize uh, Boer gold. Um, the, the prime mover in bringing things to a head in South Africa was Alfred Milner. Uh, Milner was something of a, of a socialist. Um, he was offended uh, by the fact that the constitution of the Transvaal was explicitly white supremacist, it uh, it declared the uh, the the permanent uh, uh, dominance of white Dutch Boers over Black Africans, uh, and he and the British Empire were uh, ever since the abolition of the slave trade committed uh, to to some notion of racial equality. Um, uh, Miller was also uh, upset at the fact that the the uh, the mines in the Transvaal had attracted hundreds of thousands of um, or tens of thousands at least of of British uh, miners, and the miners uh, 
paid most of the tax supporting the Transvaal government, but the, the British miners uh, had no political representation. So this is a, an issue that uh, Americans will recognize very well. Um, so for those two reasons, uh, uh, Milner was determined to uh, uh, force a showdown with the Transvaal, um, uh, could not get the Transvaal to reform, uh, um, and uh, in the end, it wasn't the British who invaded the Transvaal, it was the Transvaal uh, and the other Boer Republic, the Orange Free State, that launched a preemptive, preemptive attack on uh, the British colonies. Um, and I note that um, during the Boer War, most black Africans and African-Americans uh, supported the British against the Boer. And what about the case of uh, Benin? Uh, Benin, okay. Um, so, uh, again, this is 1897. Uh, a British punitive expedition um, enters the Kingdom of Benin in West Africa and deposes the, the Oba, the King of Benin. So why did they do it? Um, some people claim uh, that uh, the British wanted to get their hands on uh, a Beninese timber, so it was economic. Um, the evidence, as far as I can see, is that, that wasn't the case. Yes, um, British and African uh, uh, entrepreneurs and merchants uh, were frustrated at the, uh, uh, the way in which the uh, authorities in Benin um, waxed hot and cold about um, uh, uh, trade. Um, and yes, there was pressure on the British to intervene to stop this. Um, but the British didn't do that uh, until um, an unarmed um, diplomatic mission uh, to the uh, over of Benin uh, were slaughtered. Um, um, it was it was in response to that that the Foreign Office in London was galvanized to do something because it, it, it had prevaricated about doing anything about Benin, partly because um, military expeditions and uh, imposing colonial rule on far distant parts of the earth is expensive. And London was also often asking itself, <laughs> Uh, what do we get from this? What's the point of it? Um, and isn't it simply going to add to our to our financial burden? And so London was was often resistant to to foreign adventures unless it was really um, um, forced to. But it, it was the slaughter of the unarmed embassy that um, decided London that something had to be done uh, to make clear that this uh, can't be repeated. Um, and the fact that uh, Benin uh, had a reputation which was uh, um, grounded, in, in fact, for being something of a uh, slave trading hub, although not so much at the end of the 1800s at the, as at the beginning, uh, and also um, it practiced uh, um, 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 forms of, of human sacrifice. So uh, Victorian... Uh, humanitarians were uh, appalled at uh, stories coming out of Benin in the same way that uh, contemporary progressives might be appalled at, at, at various humanitarian atrocities. So um, the invasion was not, the, the military expedition was not designed simply to, 
to get hold of, of uh, timber and to open Benin to, to commerce. Um, that was one of the effects, but it wasn't the reason that uh, the expedition was made. The expedition was a response to the slaughter of a diplomatic mission. And um, one of the immediate things that the British did upon uh, uh, occupying Benin was to emancipate slaves. Um, um, and then what the British did was to uh, uh, um, establish uh, a, uh, a new Beninese regime, and then and then uh, uh, supervised by a British resident and the British left. So the the, the the British did not impose direct government; it it changed the government and then and then left, leaving a very light footprint. Why are you skeptical of reparations to make up for the alleged evils of the British Empire? Well, the British Empire, as I say, as a whole, um, did all sorts of good as well as evil, uh, just like any other state. Um, so, as a whole, I think it, 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 it that's just it doesn't make sense uh, uh, to to um, to try and make reparation for instances of, of wrongdoing in, in the past, because if, we, if we're going to do that, then no state in the world that's been around for more than a generation or two, no state gets off free that, uh, from that. Um, reparations normally focus on slavery, and my objections to reparations for slavery are, are several. One is, um, why pick on the British? Why pick on the Europeans? Why pick on the Americans? Uh, slavery was universal. Uh, and it was perpetrated by people with non-white skins. Um, there are, in the United States, descendants of Comanche, uh, uh, Native Americans, uh, who ran, as I said, a vast slave economy. Um, so first of all, slavery was universal. Why pick on the, on the whites? Why pick on the Brits? Secondly, if, if you're going to um, uh, demand reparations for transatlantic slavery, then you need to apply also to the descendants of the African slave traders, because without them, there would have been no supply of Africans to be uh, traded across the Atlantic. Um, then uh, another objection is that, uh, yes, I mean, Britain, as I said, was among the first states in the world's history to abolish slave trading and slavery, and then did 150 years of, of penance for it, if you like, and according to one economic historian, uh, the British spent as much in suppressing the Atlantic slave trade in the 50 years after 1807, roughly, as they had made in profit from slave trading in the 50 years before. Uh, so if you're going to, um, to uh, um, debit the British Empire for slavery, you need to credit it for anti-slavery. And then finally, um, between the slavery of the early 1800s and the present, lie 200 years. A lot's happened in 200 years. Um, uh, so that um, right now, uh, according to World Bank data in 2020, for example, um, the population of Barbados, which is a, uh, the population of Barbados comprises uh, largely descendants of former slaves. Uh, the Barbadians are better off in terms of literacy, life expectancy, and um, gross national income 
in international dollars than are Nigerians, who, many of whom are the descendants of slave raiders and slave owners and slave traders. Um, so it's not it's not immediately obvious that um, that uh, slavery 200 years ago has disadvantaged um, uh, the descendants of slaves in Barbados and elsewhere in the West Indies relative to uh, the people they left behind in West Africa. Why do you believe that post-colonial studies is a problematic discipline? Well, it's problematic uh, because mainly because it is dogmatic. <laughs> I mean, the um, um, the the patriarch of post-colonial studies is Edward Said, the um, American-Palestinian scholar of literature, and uh, he had this. He developed this view that um, uh, the Western perception and representation and appropriation of Oriental or non-Western cultures was um, dominating and distorting and um, condescending and racist. Um, it was it, it was a kind of um, it, it abused non-Western culture in various ways, and this is this is not, this is taken as axiomatic by post-colonial scholars. Um, uh, so post-colonial studies is not just it's not merely the study of of um, of, uh, of of post of, of the societies of countries that or the cultures of countries that used to be colonized uh, it, it is um, structured by certain theories and Edward Said's more than any other and uh, I've read I've read um, books by post-colonial scholars uh, one in particular I'm thinking of by a uh, Cambridge uh, a professor of post-colonial literature Prembada Gopal, um, the book's called Insurgent Empire, and it's about the way in which um, anti-imperialists in Britain and anti-imperialists uh, through the empire uh, collaborated and and uh, uh, worked together. But but the, the the point about Gopal's book is, if you read the 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 opening uh, introduction, uh, you will see she invokes Said many many times, as if uh, Said's writings were holy scripture and you would never get any hint from reading Gopal uh, that Said is actually highly controversial. There are lots of people who have um, uh, developed critiques of Said uh, and pointed out that his, his uh, claims about um, the, the, the view by European imperialists of uh, native cultures and literature, uh, the claims he makes are far too simplistic. Uh, so, for example, Ian Gilmore writing about um, officers of the East India Company in India in the 18th and 19th centuries. Uh, he says, and I quote him in my book, he says, these people were interested in, in uh, um, ancient Indian literature and um, monuments uh, and art uh, because they, they found them fascinating. They, 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 in the way that they found it intellectually and aesthetically attractive and fascinating, 
uh, it had nothing to do with with um, simply using culture uh, as some kind of tool for political oppression. Um, but the, the, the problem with with uh, many postcolonial scholars is they 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 take Said's theory as, as if it was axiomatic, and it's not. Um, and their reading of uh, colonial data um, is is therefore distorted by by a theory that they simply don't reflect critically on. And the other thing about postcolonial studies is uh, uh, most postcolonial scholars are scholars of literature. They're not, they're not historians, um, and they think they can read. They, they they're, they're reaching truths about uh, the imperial mindset through reading literature, uh, but often the the historical data just doesn't fit their their theory any more than than um, the economic theory of of neo-Marxist colonial economics uh, is matched by the the economic data. Why do not our post-colonial culture warriors concentrate on current cases of imperial violence, such as Han Chinese rule in Tibet and Xianqing, where this worst sort of imperial violence and indeed cultural genocide is at play? Uh, great question, Charles. Um, and the answer is uh, <laughs> uh, the decolonizers, the anti-colonialists in the West, I'm afraid they don't really care about the oppressed. They really don't. Um, this became clear to me back in 2016, 1516, and more recently when there was a resurgence of the Rhodes Must Fall agitation in Oxford, where you had uh, several hundred uh, student protesters um, clamoring for the dismantling of this rather obscure, uh, not very big statue of Cecil Rhodes. Um, um, so Cecil Rhodes was um, a, a, a confessed British imperialist. Um, he was a capitalist. Uh, he made lots of money. He, he um, his practices were sometimes sharp. He was no saint, um, but he was no he was not South Africa's Hitler, and he was not guilty of genocide as the protesters claim. But there they are. Um, these are Oxford students. These are students at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. They are privileged to be here, and no doubt they've earned it through their through their uh, um, academic work. But not everyone gets to be here. It's a privilege to be here, and someone must have supported them to get them here. And uh, here they are, uh, clamouring for the downfall of a statue of a much forgotten, long forgotten British imperialist who's been dead for 120 years. Meanwhile, in South Africa, uh, Jacob Zuma and the ANC are looting and ruining the South African state and bringing it to the edge of bankruptcy. And did they care? Any sign that they cared about what, what was actually happening in South Africa? Not a sign, because it's not the real oppressed that they care about. Um, this is about virtue signaling. This is about the ego of the protester uh, who, who see themselves as, as social justice warriors. Um, but the answer to your question, I think, simply, Charles, is um, that the 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 um, decolonizing, anti-colonialist, anti-racist lobbying—it's it's not about the poor and oppressed. It's about 
the lobbyists. Would you agree with the historian Niall Ferguson that the British Empire was, quote, a good thing, unquote? Well, uh, sort of. Um, I mean, in the conclusion of my book, I say that, you know, having surveyed the empire, you can draw up a list of goods and evils. And I, I'm not a utilitarian, and I don't think you can put the goods and evils into a computer and come up with um, um, a conclusion that say, says that one weighs more than another. Uh, I think what you can say is uh, there the, were the, the, both goods and evils. You can say that there was nothing in the British Empire that approximated the radically evil Nazi Empire. You can say that um, from around 1800, there was a growing humanitarian concern that uh, significantly shaped imperial policy and action, starting with slavery, anti-slavery. You can say that the British learnt their lesson from the loss of the American colonies in the 1780s. And from 1867 onwards, uh, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa become increasingly independent states. So by 1930, they are virtually independent. And India is put on the same track. So the, the, the liberal vision of the empire relaxing into a voluntary association of a commonwealth of nations uh, was was beginning to gain traction in the 1860s. The, the, um, the, the name, the Commonwealth of Nations, was first coined in 1917. And you can also say that the empire um, contained and exported uh, liberal institutions of a free press, of the rule of law, of an independent judiciary, um, and parliamentary accountability, which meant that unlike other systems, um, some measure, so, so some possibility of the correction of abuses of government was possible and, and sometimes happened. And then finally, you can say that uh, the character, the mature character of the empire became visible uh, when the empire was at its most violent between 1939 and 45. Doing what? Uh, combating um a murderous form of imperialism in Asia, name of Japanese imperialism, guilty of the rape of Nanjing, and combating the uh, massively murderous racist regime in Berlin, in Nazi Berlin. And between May 1940, when France fell, and June 41, when the Germans unwisely invaded the Soviet Union, the British Empire, with the sole exception of Greece, offered the only military opposition to Nazi Germany. Um, and I think, so if, if, um, if you happen to be driving uh, in Sicily, um, southwest of Mount Etna, driving eastwards toward the town of Regalbuto, you will uh, pass by on your left a Second World War military cemetery. Um, and the cemetery contains young Canadians. And if you wander among the the graves, you will come across one to a young 28-year-old called H.R. Anderson, and his epitaph describes him as an anti-fascist fighter. Now, Anderson was a volunteer. He answered the call. Um, It was the British Empire that called him, and I think that says a lot about what the empire had come to stand for. 
On that observation, which I would like to agree with entirely, I would like to thank you very much, Professor, for being so kind as to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. You've been listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Big R, very, very much. Uh, thanks, Charles, for this opportunity to talk.